Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to announce that a buffet supper will be served in the next room in five minutes. In order to get you in that room quickly, Mr. Schmalhausen will sing a soprano solo in this room. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Marx Brothers Council podcast, episode two, Noah, Bob, Joe, and sometimes Matthew, featuring a special appearance by the wonderful, talented, and liberal Joe Adamson. We'll be talking to him later in the show. In the meantime, I'm here with my regular cohorts, Noah Diamond and Matthew Conium. Hello. Hello. First of all, we wanted to thank everyone for the great feedback for our first episode. We were unsure how it was going to be received, and it's been quite good. Nothing but good comments. And, you know, we also want to especially thank the people who didn't like the show for keeping your mouth shut, and we hope you'll continue to do that. Yeah, and if you like the show, please give us a review on iTunes or comment on our blog. Talk about how much you like us and share your opinions, because it's important to express yourself if you like our podcast. Was there any feedback or comments about uh, our first show that surprised or the the Chico Chico thing got a bit of uh, got a bit of interest as I was expecting it to to be honest. I think it was there was a, quite a few people sort of wanting to pat you on the back for your for your stance. There was a little bit of uh, you know this is revisionism gone crazy, but uh, mm-hmm. I think yeah I, I mean I, it's one of those annoying issues or annoying for me in that I really can see both sides, which is not. You know, it doesn't happen very often, and it's, it doesn't feel terribly comfortable. So I, I don't really have a have a dog in the race. But I think the the only other thing that I th- I thought of afterwards to, to maybe add was um, that even at the end, uh, I mean, the, the fact that that Groucho and everybody still calls him Chico, I think, is understandable when you remember right. that they really did use those names. I mean, Groucho would literally pick up the phone and say, how are you doing, Harpo? And Harpo would say, great, you know, great. So they actually did use those names. So obviously they're, they're not going to suddenly change their pronunciation. But even at the very end, when Groucho is on the talk shows and he's saying, you know, Chico uh, was called Chico because he used to chase the boys, he would never then say, <laughs> oh, and by the way, it is Chico. That was uncanny, man. But even even at that, you know, that God given opportunity, he didn't then stop and say, oh, and by the way, it is Chico. It's not Chico. As Noah said last time, they really didn't care. And in fact, I remember Noah Mm -hmm. showing me um, a letter. I think it was in the Smithsonian that Chico wrote to Gummo around about the time of Love Happy when Chico was in London. And uh, Chico, Chico gave his daughter the middle name Gummo. She was actually she was born Maxine Gummo. Marks, and yet here he is. Here he is writing to Gummo, and not only on the on the envelope, on the address, but throughout the letter, he spells it with one M, like Gumo. Um, they simply didn't care about this stuff. You know, my I gave my daughter the middle name Gummo, and it never even occurred to me that that was the name of one of the Marxists. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, I just noticed I'm thinking about my intro here because I never introduced a show. I didn't introduce myself. Um, ah. um, uh, yeah, who, uh, are you? who are you anyway? <laughs> I'm, I'm Bob Cassell. We That's were wondering, it. but we didn't want to ask. Well, I got the pronunciation in again, just to, for all those who missed it the first time. I'm fine. Who are you? And as far as reaction to our first episode, again, we did get one comment. Do you remember who that was from, Matthew, the one we're going to talk about? Um, I don't. Was it Dave something? Does that help? <laughs> I think it was Dave something. I, I don't know how sincere he was, but it sort of bothered him that we agreed perhaps a bit too much for his taste and wish we had some more disagreements and different takes. And obviously that's going to happen down the line, but our, our overall views are quite similar. You know, we might have a different preference, but it's not like you hate something that I love or vice versa. I don't believe. 
Yeah, I mean, we do share some eccentricities, I think, in that we're all, you know, unusually well disposed to coconuts, uh, unusually not bothered by room service. So unfortunately, there is <laughs> there is that kind of uh, lack of uh, disagreement there. I think we've influenced each other a little bit, too. I mean, a, a lot of the things that we will undoubtedly discuss as this podcast continues to rack up episodes are things that we've been over in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group uh, to the point where we have at least considered every available view of a lot of these questions. The main one that I think uh, some of you want to hear is our evaluation of duck soup, which myself and I think Noah might hold a a bit higher than than Matthew. And rather than get into the whole film this time, because we're going to do a dedicated show to Duck Soup as well as all the others at some point, but rather than focus on the whole film, let's focus on like one part of it that seems to bother Matthew. And that seems to be the the stuff with Harpo going off on his Paul Revere ride in the horse, which which I absolutely love. And Matthew doesn't seem (laughs) to care for it all. It's true. I'm I'm not too keen on that. But then I'm not too keen on the the opening either. Um, I'm not too keen on the lemonade stand bit. But but my um my if I had to to choose one uh, representative bit of duck soup um that that I would put forward as a as a least favorite I would probably go for uh the the is going to war musical number how's that for putting the cat among the pigeons all right well it does seem like one of the areas where we disagree is that I like duck soup slightly better than Matthew does and Bob likes it slightly better than I do mm-hmm. um, but I think that Paul Revere scene in particular um is to me a very good encapsulation of the different approaches at war in Duck Soup. I, I don't particularly care for the, you know, uh, Laurel and Hardy style, ain't she sweet instrumental playing under Harpo's infiltration of this poor married couple. <laughs> oh, that was always that, my favorite part. I love that. That, <laughs> that doesn't do a lot for me. But I love the Marx Brothers in their Revolutionary War regalia in front of a curtain it looks very much like the Napoleon scene or the Dubarry scene from Animal Crackers. The enemy is coming from afar with a hey na nani and a hot cha cha. Uh, I love that stuff very much, and it's part of that sequence. You know, the whole film is obviously leading towards a war finale, and you know how how serious can they do it? They have to make it a farce. So, yeah, I uh, yeah, for me, it's. I mean, I have mixed feelings about Duck Soup, um, and I think I do rank it a little lower than most fans tend to, mm-hmm. but. Uh, for me, the finale sequence is not part of the problem. Yeah. I know Help is on the Way ranks very low in your regard, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awful, isn't it? The, the animals running about. It's, it's really, really awful. <laughs> but it's one, it's one ten-second gag. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, there are lots of good jokes at the end in in the in that big war in the war finale. That there are lots of good jokes in it, and and on the whole, it's it's fine. And particularly Groucho uh, changing his uniform all the time. That's fabulous, and uh, you know, plenty yeah. of other nice moments. But, but particularly that song, the the uh, Fernandez going to war song. I think if that was wasn't about going to war and if this, if this makes any sense at all but if you didn't have that excuse that it was part of this trailblazing anti-war satire i can't imagine anybody watching that and thinking anything other than oh they're really just they're just mucking about here aren't they they're just they're they're, <laughs> they're capering about like like kids it's kind of like the ritz brothers or something it's very possible that somewhere in that melee of people dancing around 
in that musical number is Leo is Leo McCary. There are news clippings indicating that he did dress as a peasant for mm. for one of these later scenes. We've never been able to spot him. We had one little hunch that is quite questionable, but if if you if anybody ever spots him, that would be uh, quite an accomplishment. So get your HD copies out, folks. <laughs> Haven't you guys theorized that McCary might be the honorable Pandu of Muff Tan? Or I I did. I wanted to think that because he's not oh, he's yeah. not. Um, there's no there's no actor linked to that role, and it's such an obvious. Uh, you know, he's obviously a Caucasian guy with a with a big fake beard. So I, then that's the inevitable obvious choice for somebody who wants to do a a cameo. But since then, we found him uh, being dressed up as a peasant, haven't we? So Yeah, we found the clipping that, uh, that, that literally said he was dressing as a peasant. And the only thing that really is peasant is the gallery in, in, the, in the courtroom scene in the finale musical. And I also thought he wouldn't want something that would have him on screen too long. You know, I, I, right. the, the brilliant thing about the Pandu is he just kind of walks across the screen. He's, it's very, it's tailor-made. Uh, if he's going to be in the chorus, you know, he's going to be sort of stuck there while they do shoot after shoot after retake. Um, but it seems to be that seems to be where he is. God knows why, why he bothered. But there we are. Maybe maybe there was more of him originally, and it just got he got lost in a you know in, in the process of normal editing. But yeah, who absolutely. Knows? Yeah. So any other like strong degree disagreements that you think we may have that you want to touch on? You know, Matthew and I have spoken over the years, and we have disagreements on quite a bit of stuff, but not really Marx Brothers related. You know? <laughs> you know? If we want to talk about the merits of the Beatles or Mystery Science Theater, then, then, then we got an episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand. I mean, maybe it's possible that our public demands that we disagree with each other more to keep this podcast dramatic and interesting, but barring any such effort, I don't, I don't feel a great chasm um, in our opinions of the Marx Brothers films. All of which uh, then leads us with with fake spontaneity into the uh, the idea of what are our, our least favourite parts of the Marx Brothers films. I've I've just nominated uh, Fredonia's Going to Wars as one of mine uh, for two reasons: one, because it's complete rubbish, and two, because it's going to annoy the maximum number of people. Which I assume is basically the point <laughs> of this exercise is to is to get people riled. Um, but so, so yeah, that would be my my first choice. What what are your uh, what would be your suggestions for your your all time least favorite Marx moments? Well, we had some ground rules here when we kicked this idea around. That I wanted to make sure that they didn't involve like romantic subplots or yes. musical numbers because that, that would be too easy. Proper Marx scenes, yes. So I got number three. It's going to surprise a lot of you. I am not a big fan of that opening reveal of the Marxes in Monkey Business when they come popping out of the barrel. Oh my goodness! I, I I think it's a very I think it's a very iconic image, Ooh. and. But just so that that first little exchange for 30, 40 seconds, it just seems like they're doing some vaudeville stuff to the camera. It it doesn't really work for me as part of a a movie. Ah, this is the only way to travel, boys. The only way. I was going to bring along the wife and kitties, but the grocer couldn't spare another barrel. I was going to bring my grandfather, but there's no room for his beard. Why don't you send for the old swine and let his beard come later? I sent for his beard. You did? Yeah, it's coming by hair mail. Say, fellas, I think I hear someone. Well, if it's the captain, I'm going to have a few words with him. My hot water's been called for three days, and I haven't got room enough in here to swing a cat. In fact, I haven't even got a cat. My grandfather can swing a cat. Hey, that'd make a good job for him. Come on, man. Hey, someone's coming. I have no problem with the jokes there. It's good material. It's just I don't like the staging. It's just sort of self-conscious and stagey and breaks the fourth wall sort of, and and not not in a clever way. To be honest, you know, I think you're right. It doesn't feel like a movie, and that's sort of why I do like it. You can almost imagine the the, the curtain coming up, 
and then you you know the, the first thing the audience sees are these four barrels and then you hear them talking and then they pop out it's incredibly theatrical actually it's very much like the start of a, mm. of, a of a sketch or a show but um but you know that's why i do like it yeah i would take that angle on it too i i love that moment and especially as their first original film and after two films based on their stage shows um, the big question of how are you going to make this work? And the fact that before you see a single Marx brother, you see these four obviously man-sized barrels <laughs> in the hold. I love that. I think it's a great entrance. Um, Let me just clarify that I don't really hate the scene. I just, you know, it gives me a sort of a sour taste in my mouth. It's just a little cringy and, I don't know, old-timey for me. And this is about the only time I've ever said that about the Marx brothers. Well, as far as I'm concerned, both of you have, have topped me here because – in trying to figure out my least favorite moments, I dearly wanted to come up with examples from the good films mm. uh, because I thought it, it's – even if you restrict it to the Marx Brothers' own appearances, it's a little too easy to pick bad moments from the late films. Right. But whatever my like misgivings might be about – the Punch and Judy scene in Monkey Business, which I took some heat for my opinion <laughs> in our uh, first episode. Yeah. That or um, maybe the lemonade stuff in Duck Soup or the baby talk in the canoe in Horse Feathers. Uh, none of it is nearly as, uh, you know, none of it grates on me like some of the stuff in, in the lesser mm -hmm. films. So all three of my examples are from the final three MGMs. Okay, that's fine. Um, and uh, I guess my my... The one that I like the most of these least favorites is the circus sequence itself in At the Circus, mm -hmm. which I just find depressing. Keep calm, folks. It's all part of the show. Get me out of this kennel! Get me out of this kennel! Please, get me out of this kennel! I know that um, many, many people see a lot of connection, uh, fond connection, between what the Marx Brothers did and the world of the circus, right. which which is historically tied in with vaudeville and variety entertainment. And um, there is a family resemblance among these things. Um, but as has often been pointed out by Adamson and many others, um, the Marx Brothers, um, you know, the argument that they belong in a circus and therefore it's not satisfying to see them in one. Um, I don't know if that's always true, but for me, it is definitely true here. And the obviously tricked up gags, the extremely low level of the Groucho humor in this movie in general is just exemplified by lines like calling Tarzan. <laughs> I find it really embarrassing. And it seems to so specifically ignore the lesson of the success of the opera sequence in A Night at the Opera. Right. Uh, I think it has one funny moment in it, which is after Margaret Dumont is shot out of a cannon, um, which, which I don't approve of in itself. <laughs> uh, I love Chico, though, saying, I'm sorry, Mrs. Dukesbury, I didn't know it was loaded. I think that's why they didn't do the stage tour. She would not do that. She yeah. would <laughs> That is a great moment, though, Chico. Uh, I didn't know it was loaded. <laughs> That sequence for me is is everything that's wrong with that movie, and and just seeing them in that context uh, is is a little painful. I would just say that I think I, I'm slightly uh, less bothered by the circus setting in general because I think that the point of it is that they they use the circus to disrupt another of her high society soirees. So it's not yes. it's not so much that uh, they've been, they've been put in a circus setting because that suits them. It, it's it's that they're using it as a, as a disruptive force so i can sort of go that far with it but you're of course you're right it is a, it is a, a a fairly desperate scene the only thing i do like you mentioned groucho's uh commentary there which i i agree is 
reasonably witless, but I quite like the fact that Groucho's character is doing that when he knows full well that what he's commenting on isn't part of the show, but but is a, poten- a potential disaster that will you know will will involve multiple corpses, uh, and yet he's blithely saying, "Keep calm, folks. It's all part of the show." And you know, I hope he's got two pair of pants for that suit. When what he see what he knows he's seeing really is a man being being tormented by a homicidal gorilla. So I think there's kind of a a, a hint of the old Groucho there, but I, I wouldn't push it too far. Maybe a hint, and I guess it's deliberately evocative of some of his conduct in um, the opera scene and also the uh, old barn scene in Monkey Business where he becomes the kind of color commentator. Um, oh, he also does a bit of that at the football game in Horse Feathers. I agree with the, as a nuance observation, it is true that it's not quite as simple as the Marx Brothers invading a circus versus invading a cocktail party or an opera house. Mm-hmm. Um, they do inflict the circus on the... Um, you know, elite Margaret Dumont world. Nevertheless, the effect of the movie still is you come away with, oh, it was the Marx Brothers at the circus. Yes. Which um, is a diminished Marx Brothers, even if it had been a great script. Mm hmm. Yes, I, I suppose I should also, um, ha- having uh, thrown that duck soup on in, um, I take from from the final three, and I guess I have to stick with the one that I nominate in my book as as my least favorite, uh, which is you can't argue with love from Go West. She's mad about me, is what woman isn't. I know you're going to ask, what is my secret? You rotter, you scrounge. The secret is never let her know you care. Never pursue her. Let her pursue you. Fan the flame of desire with the bellows of indifference. Didn't we meet at Monte Carlo the night you blew your brains out? How we laughed. (laughs) The reason why I think that sequence is so especially uh, cringy is because although Groucho's jokes in it are no worse than his jokes elsewhere in the film, they've been put into a very specific context, uh, a musical sort of context that that demands much more of them. And they're, right. which they're, you know, singularly unable to uh, to deliver up in the musical breaks, you know, between each verse. He's coming in with a with a line and each one is supposed to be, a you know, a woofer. And uh, obviously they're not. And he does all those awful vocal things like, you know, goo, let's break all that stuff, you know, and uh, how we laughed. Uh, very, very embarrassing over the top stuff. But then particularly that that, that last one, um, which is it's an OK joke about having a wick in his mouth or something. Um, that's supposed to kind of propel him on a cloud of laughter into joining in with the last line of the song. Uh, and when you're watching it, particularly if you're watching it on your own, but but to be honest, if you're watching it with 100 people, you know, it's it, you just, oh, <laughs> my God. You know, the, 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 that, that faked momentum, that faked energy, it just sort of flaps like a dying fish. <laughs> my second one, I, I, I've mentioned this before, and I even mentioned the last episode, but I'll I'll go through it again is the infamous scene in at the circus where Groucho is trying to get the money back from Evarden and somehow ends up stuck on the ceiling. Hey, Pauline, help me down. Pauline, let me have that wallet. Oh, Pauline, I'm stuck up. Pauline, let, let, let me down. Pauline, how do I get down out of here? Pauline, quick, quick, help, help, Pauline, help. Get me down, Pauline. Pauline, fall, Pauline. Help me down. Get me off the ceiling. He's been totally uh, taken by this woman. It's been outsmarted and he has nothing funny to say. And it's just up there yelling. <laughs> and it's not that I don't want to see Groucho outsmarted, but I want to see him out, see him outsmarted by Harpo or, or Chico. 
you know mm-hmm. I'd, I'd even take zeppo out smarting him that would be a good that'd be a good scene if he hadn't left the act, Zeppo probably would have played Pauline in at the circus. <laughs> yeah, from the from the moment he simpers on in that in that outfit, looking all embarrassed, to to the very you know to him crashing to the ground when Harpo undoes his boots, it's a, it's a, a very painful spectacle of a of a hugely diminished man. Not only is it unfunny, it sort of grates on me how unfunny it is. Yeah, and I think your expectations yeah. make a difference yeah. as well. You, you have a, re, you know, it's reasonable to presume that this is going to be a good comedy sequence. So, so your disappointment is is the greater. And obviously, something like Harpo being tortured in Love Happy with that sopping wet wig on is worse. But yeah. but you don't, you have no expectations of that. So it sort of you forget about it. But when you have a big scene set up like that and it it turns into that, then that does mm-hmm. stick in the memory more. Yeah, it seems like a lot of our choices for these least favorite moments have to do with <laughs> scenes or moments that are not funny plus. Like, they're not funny, and then there's something else about them that's difficult or painful or, <laughs> or otherwise unappealing. <laughs> and my number two choice is very much one of those. It's the whole scene at the Indian camp in Go West. Yes. Canelo, this Indian's no Indian. If he's no Indian, why is he wearing a chicken for a hat? He's half Indian and half ostrich. I think the only thing it has going for it is what immediately follows it, which is an unusual harp solo from Harpo, played on a sort of loom rather than a harp. And that is interesting as a sort of, um, it just mixes up the formula in a, in a way. Uh, however, the rest of that scene for me is a complete loss and the level of comedy is so low and the use of the Marx Brothers characters is so um, it misses the mark so consistently yeah. uh, that there's no reason to forgive the yeah. depiction of uh, <laughs> and that and that was one of the uh, scenes done on the road tour that was mm, it's yeah, yeah. hard to imagine yeah. how yeah. how yeah. they they really worked on that to get it up to its level <laughs> it boggles the mind to think about what the original version was before they honed it if it were a wonderful comedy scene, then we would make all the usual excuses about the, you know, it was uh, standard for its time and it's uh, in some sense a satire of Westerns, which were guilty of the same thing. But this absolute uh, cringe-inspiring depiction of of Native Americans or First Nations combined with um, the Marx Brothers operating on a level, uh, you just wish you could say that this material was unworthy of them. When you think about it, it's actually a blessing in disguise because if it was a good scene, we probably wouldn't be able to enjoy it yeah. these days anyhow. Yeah. So thank you, Mr. Brecher, for your lousy writing. I think me want Cadillac sedan is a line that never should have made it into a Marx Brothers movie. It's when Brecher starts singing My Body Lies Over the Ocean that, that gets me because it's set up in such a, <laughs> such a crass, you know, that tiny little bit of, of you know music played on the, whatever it is, on a ram's horn or something. And then in he comes, you know, in, in his usual Ed Bazell form. He kind of dives in with his lines. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And so many of these lines, I don't know why we don't stop at a regular motel. Yeah, a slot machine. She's been off the reservation. Uh, slot machine. There's one thing that could have saved it is they could have said they were going to scalp him and rip the toupee off. <laughs> saved the scene and the film. <laughs> Alas, we would have to wait for Blazing Saddles to set <laughs> set the Western straight on this subject. Right. So my next choice then is one that is kind of halfway between um, the the um, your monkey business one and, and then the, uh, the the more obvious choices from the later ones. Um, I hope it passes because it it's not it's not a hundred percent 
a Marx comedy scene, but it's but it's not a it's not a, like a romantic song or anything like that. And it's the it's the the, the finale of uh, of a day at the races. Mr. Morgan, would you mind telling the radio audience what I hail you? Are? I'll come back later. Oh, I've had enough of this. I'll handle you. I'll handle you myself. Because of all the things in A Day at the Races that I'm not so keen on, most of them you can see what the idea was. Uh, usually it's it's a, a fairly obvious imitation of something that had been in A Night at the Opera. But one of the one of the best things about A Night at the Opera was that finale where they mm-hmm. you know take on the 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 world of grand opera and, and destroy the theater etc etc etc. So you would think they would be looking for something comparable there. But instead of that, it's a, a very strange scene which is a comic to start with when they keep trying to stop the race from beginning. So there's various sort of comedic right. ways of of uh, of stopping it. But once mm-hmm. it starts, uh I, I think we're supposed to be excited, aren't we? I think we're supposed to want to, uh, you know, come on Harpo and, and re- we're supposed to really be getting into this race because nothing funny happens apart from, I suppose, the attempts to, to make the horse go faster by getting uh, whatever he's called, Douglas Dumbrell, to talk into right. a mic and all that. Apart from that, it's, it's just like an exciting action scene which has no business whatsoever in, in a Marshall Is there a one particular shot that specifically bothers you? Oh well, all the horses falling over, I I find disgusting. Yeah, and there's there's what there's that horrible bit where where one lands on its neck and the, and the camera just just cuts, you know, instantly while they yeah. you know simply drag drag it off and bring on a, a substitute, you know. I'm guessing that was Sam Wood's like tenth take of it. Yes, yes, I'm sure. Yeah, it was the the twenty fifth <laughs> horse that day. I'm sure, but um. Yeah. yeah, wasn't there a famous moment where Sam Wood said like, "You can't make a horse out of clay." <laughs> and one of the horses. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that was the one that broke its neck. Yeah, but uh, yeah. interestingly, the um, I don't know that the version we've got I, I obviously has been very, very carefully uh, edited so that you know we, we don't get to see what happens to that horse that lands on its neck, etc. But I don't know if that's the original version or not. I do know that in in Britain, it was cut further for that reason, which gives me uh, you know mm. a, a degree of pride. But uh, yeah, grotesque and doesn't even try to be funny. So that's that's my my take on the on the big finale of uh, Day of the Races. My last one's sort of a cheat because you're going to go. I don't know whether that qualifies, but I'm going to say it anyhow. I have a tough time sitting through horse feathers for one specific reason. Ah, uh, yes. This scene with Selma Todd in her apartment that is chopped to shreds for various reasons, which we may get into it some other, some other time. But it's chopped to shreds and it's. Very difficult to sit through. Oh, you're beautiful. Oh, so nice. Bellissima ragazza vede la faccia di una madonna. That overcome me. Right, but remember we have... Oh, no. Lady, I like you. You got something, but what it is. I'm going to tell him he's crazy. I know it's coming. I'm sitting through the whole film. I'm, I'm cringing. I'm thinking, oh, God, that scene's coming up. That's coming up. And then I sit through it and just a mess and it sort of destroys the flow of the film for me even though it's only like a minor two minute section maybe i'm anal i know i'm (laughs) I'm an editor i'm an editor as a profession so the editing you know really takes a take is very prominent for me and so when i see this it it's hard for me to deal with it's unfortunate certainly i i I can't say it bothers me too much to be honest i mean this is why why uh, John Tefteller gets so so cross with me. 
um, from time to time yeah. is because I don't I don't really care about restorations much. I don't really care about the, the quality of the film as long as I can hear the jokes, as long as I can see their yeah. faces. I, I'm not too bothered. It is a great pity that that scene is incomplete, but uh, but it's you know I, I certainly don't worry about it. I certainly don't care about you know future generations or any of that nonsense. I hear an ambulance going by. What's, mm. what's going on there? Who, who's it going by? It's not going by me. <laughs> Okay. Oh, it's, it, it's, it's probably on my end. Yeah, it's I'm, going by now. I'm here in New York City. Yeah, guess which one of us is in New, in New York City. Yeah, yeah the, I'm sitting in the midst of a raging apocalypse around me. Um, anyhow, I've taken it on my own in the past to try and re-edit that scene to make it somewhere coherent. And I, I think I did a fairly good job. I think we'll, perhaps we'll post it on the blog. Hmm. When they did the restoration, I, I submitted this. And how far did that get you? <laughs> I said that I never heard anything back. I must admit, though, it is a very professional job. You can't tell which bits are from the real film and which bits are you, uh, you know, re- restaging them on a similar set. It's it's very it's very <laughs> cleverly done. I must say, my, my son did a great job as Thelma. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I fall on the side of being less less bothered by the choppiness of that scene. I mean, I I certainly wish that we had it in its entirety and. Also, because that scene has a connection to I'll Say She Is and the Napoleon yeah. scene and participation of, of Will Johnstone, I have even extra reasons for wishing it were intact, but it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I don't find it painful. And a little bit like the way we talk about some of the technical shortcomings of the coconuts, you know, when I see those lines chopped in half in that scene in Horse Feathers, I think of the age of the film and how lucky we are to have these films in any form at all. Uh, my my uh, third moment and the worst, actually, now, as I think about it, maybe this doesn't even count because I don't know that for all intents and purposes, the Marx Brothers are not in the roller skating sequence in the big <laughs> store. You've got to get this picture to Tommy immediately. There he is. But it is, for me, just about the lowest we ever get. You know, it has nothing to do with them. It's just their images, more or less, being, you know, sliding back and forth across the screen, pursuing uh, or being pursued by the villains. And sometimes with the last three MGMs, as a way of moderating our dislike, we say, well, if it were another comedy team, this would be good material. (laughs) It's just we we expect so much more from the Marx Brothers. Um, But it's hard to think of any comedy team who this would not have been well beneath. And what's particularly frustrating is that we know Chico really was able to skate quite well because he was in the roller, <laughs> yeah, he was he yes. was in the roller derby in uh, France in 1949. Um, I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever seen the film where he really could skate quite well for a man uh, approaching 60. Yeah, there's a spate of news stories from 1924. Forgive me for my I'll say she is centric view of the <laughs> Marx Brothers career. But in 1924, when they were playing at the casino, um, they were ticketed for not moving their cars to legal parking spaces during intermission or something. And so in protest, the Marx Brothers skated to the theater every day <laughs> for some period of time. And there, there are news photos. In fact, in uh, Robert Bader's book of Groucho's magazine articles, Groucho Marx and other short stories and tall tales. He's got a photograph of the Marx Brothers skating down Broadway on their way to the casino. And uh, there were news accounts at the time saying that 
I think with very little credibility that they had sea legs or skate legs all through the second show um, the first day they did that. Also funny uh, that the news coverage tended to point out that although the Marx Brothers skated down Broadway <laughs> to the theater, they obeyed all the traffic rules. <laughs> so any kids who are reading along. <laughs> you know, they just come off, I guess, what was considered a pretty successful finale in Goes West. And they were like, well, how can we top this? Or how can we emulate it? So they, they weren't even thinking what was best for the film. They were thinking, what can we do in relation to previous finales? You know, could we top it? Could we? Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind it. I think of it as very much of a piece with the rest of the big store, to be honest. it's it, I have no expectations of the big store. I just know that it's not going to bother me like the previous two did. And, you know, if they want to muck about on, on roller skates, then all right, you know, let them do it. It's obviously it's not it's not typical. It's not funny. But, um, you know, at, at least it's not uh, actively annoying me I, I i don't mind it i particularly like the way uh, chico uh, keeps saying wacky flywheel over and over again if you actually watch <laughs> as they're going about wacky flywheel says it about 400 times um but you know there we are it's okay Bob Gassell is our resident newsman at the Marx Brothers Council podcast. We rely on him to keep us up to date with all the headlines from 1905 to 1949. All right. Yeah, I've come across a few noteworthy stories uh, recently. This is from the Atlanta Constitution. It's dated February 20th, 1937. Uh, Headline, Chico Marx saves Bird, escapes tardy penalty. Dateline, Hollywood. For being late at the film set where they are working, the Marx Brothers fixed a penalty of $25. Harpo had already paid $25, and Groucho had contributed $50. But when it came to Chico's turn to be tardy, his pocketbook went scot-free. He saw a seagull suddenly fall to the ground as he passed the country club yesterday. Chico rescued the bird and found a wing was broken, apparently by a flying golf ball. The other marksmen called his act humanitarian and waived the fine. Of course, if they insist, Chico said, I can always give them the bird. Yeah, that that actually did happen. I know for a fact. <laughs> I've, I've been well. That's how Chico got his nickname. Right? Yeah. because of his habit of helping golf injured birds. birds. <laughs> <laughs> These stories, uh, you just wonder how, I mean, let's, uh, assuming that that didn't happen, I guess it could have, yeah. but you know, the, the, these are the work, of course, these stories are, are written by people who are paid to do it. That's what fascinates me. Right. The, these are people who don't, they're yeah. not even on the set, they're in an office somewhere uh, and they're typing away. And this is what they do. They go into the office in the morning, they, they you know, get in the car, they drive in, sit yeah. down, take the cover off their typewriter and then write nonsense about people making movies for that studio and then we sort of right. we have this weird sifting process where we keep the ones we like the one the ones that are, that are ridiculous <laughs> we forget about yeah there's a couple of possibilities a is that there's like a, a germ of truth and then and then the pr person went haywire on it mm. or b that the pr person came up with a good joke and fit the marx brothers into it yeah 
Yes. Sometimes with these kind of stories, we think like, well, that's a very neat and funny little anecdote and it's too perfect. I'm sure it didn't happen. That was made up by a publicist. And sometimes with these stories, we think, oh, that must have been made up by a publicist. But why? Mm. Why bother? Why <laughs> why go to the effort to perpetuate that falsehood? Was there a reporter there yeah. to see this happen? How did AP get a hold of this story? So anyhow, let me move on to the next story. The Cameron Sun in Cameron, Missouri, in February 13, 1941. The Marx Brothers at Ritz. Presenting the Marx Brothers, Groucho, Chico, and Harpo, and their first period picture, Go West, a wild and woolly comedy laid out in the 1870 outdoors, comes to the Ritz Theater Wednesday for an engagement for three days. The Marxists say this is their epic Western to end all Westerns. It is the first time anyone has ever poked fun at the big bad men, hard-boiled sirens, lovely heroines, and brave heroes of the early West. The Marxists do so by making the picture a howl from start to finish. To help things along, they don Pioneer Day costumes, revamped to suit their own ideas. Yep. Again. Sounds good. Yeah, I'd like to see I'm that. Absolutely true. Yeah. It did. It did end all Westerns. It's absolutely true. I watched it, and it ended all Westerns. And apparently it was, they were the first ones to ever think of this. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why they were so ahead of their time. It's not the best Marx Brothers movie, but it obviously is the best Western ever made. Yes. I mean, I think we all agree on that. They're saying it was the first time anybody's ever thought of poking fun. Did they not uh, – See Way Out West, which had come out like, what, three years before? Yeah, that's one of the things that makes this period so sad, isn't it? That after a career of being the first to do so many things, the Marx Brothers had become in so many ways imitative by that time. But it's, it's right there in the publicity, isn't it? There's, a, there's a, an At the Circus ad that talks, actually literally talks about their old time comedy. Uh, it's this very strange feeling that they're, that it, they're like kind of old comedians who are being brought back for some nostalgic fun. Um, Perhaps after room service, people were like, oh, we want the old kind of Marx Brothers comedy, which might have precipitated that, right? Or it's making a distinction between yeah. what the Marx Brothers did and what was in vogue in the 40s. Yeah, I think so. It's more yeah. – yeah. Because it wasn't like that during Day at the Races, but by at the circus, mm. they had become a nostalgia act. Yeah, I mean, it's very much. If you look at the reviews for those for those nineteen forties Laurel and Hardy films that that everybody hates, I, I mean, I quite, I quite like them. But um, if you the, the reviews don't say, you know, this this these films are bad compared to their great films at Hull Roach, they just say, you know, it's Laurel and Hardy. It's that it's that act from ten years ago doing their their usual thing, and you know, you might like it, and the kids might like it, but it's totally passe. That was the kind of take on it, and and there's a slight feeling that the, the same is being said about the Marx Brothers, which is unbearable, really. I do think, as we've pointed out in the past, there is an aspect of just the way one consumed movies during this period and that, you know, even the greatest fans, they hadn't seen all the early films dozens and dozens of times and knew every beat by heart. And so it, it wasn't so much, here's another item in the canon. It was, well, here's this year's entry in the March mm. Brothers films. And, and it, this one isn't as good as the one from four years ago. I don't think it was as big a concern as just, oh, we, we get to go see a Marx Brothers movie. Mm, exactly. Yes. So I got one more here. Uh, this is from the Wisconsin State Journal from Madison, Wisconsin. This is December 26, 1937. And actually, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to read the headline. I'm going to read the story, a part of the story here, and then I'll do the headline at the end. The great men of the world seemingly all had their favorite movie stars. Adolf Hitler enjoys the Marx Brothers. 
<laughs> the he- headline of the story is Hitler chooses Marx Brothers as favorites. Yeah. Oh, boy. Hmm. <laughs> yes. Hmm. <laughs> This was when, 1937. This was 1937, right. And the so, dating of that, I, I, I had a, quite an epiphany on this, that perhaps the Marxists read this, and as they're part of their way to fight the Third Reich, they decided to make those last three MGS. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're on to something. So this means, then, that that, that's, uh, that, that searing anti-war satire of duck soup just that just yes just went, went over his head he just didn't he, did, he just didn't get it he simply didn't get it <laughs> well I, I wonder how big a fan hitler was you know did he know about gummo and man yeah yeah <laughs> did he did he have that lp that gary owens lp i bet he didn't yes <laughs> calls himself a fan uh, <laughs> you know i i know that uh hitler was um interested in the great dictator. Um, and uh, although it was, of course, banned in Germany um, at the time, Hitler had a private print, which I think records indicated he'd watched at least a few times. Um, and I, I also know that Hitler had lots of connections between, as he saw it, the Jewish problem and American entertainment. Mickey Mouse was uh, considered mm. by the Nazis to be a, an icon of um, American Jewish and communist evil um so i wonder if uh, i wonder how aware he was i wonder if if hitler thought of the marx brothers as jews i wonder if he thought of them as um americans uh, a subject for more research if ever there was one <laughs> and and uh, perhaps this is going to be somebody's next book and it's just a shame he's not around so we could have him as a podcast <laughs> <laughs> to tell us which was his favorite yeah coming up after this break the Marx Brothers Council podcast talks to Joe Adamson himself, the author of Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo, the seminal book about the Brothers Marx. Ooh, I can't wait. Here's the patient, Doc. What's he got? Unhappy itis. I got just what the doctor ordered. Cheese. Cheese. Ah, Sounds ah. good. Sounds great. It's Cheeto snacks. Hey, this cheese goes crunch. Exactly. Sure, but how's it going to make him happy, Doc? Because cheese that goes crunch is fun to eat. Everyone knows that. Happy yet? <laughs> He's a cure, Doc. I'll be the judge of that. Cheetos brand. <laughs> Cheese-flavored snacks. If you want to be happy, eat more Cheetos. Hi, everyone. Bob here. Before we get to our interview with Joe Adamson, uh, a little background. First of all, we were so, so thrilled to have Joe wind up as our first ever guest on the podcast, and we were determined to make this happen, be hell or high water, and uh, that's pretty much what happened. We had some technical issues uh, getting Joe connected and ended up having to have his end done on the telephone. Uh, because of that, and Matthew being overseas, Matthew was not able to join us for the uh, interview. Also, when we got Joe on the line and started talking, we realized there was a um, a rough connection. There was some uh, clipping, stuttering, distortion, or something going on. But uh, Joe was a busy man, and we weren't sure we were going to be able to get him again. So we just forged ahead with the interview. So what you're going to hear is, you know, uh, something that sometimes sounds a little rough, but it's definitely listenable and definitely enjoyable. And Joe has some great stories to tell and some great insight and some great background to his book. So please bear with us. I think you'll really enjoy the talk and you'll get used to the audio stuff after a couple minutes. So we'll see you again on the other side of the interview. Enjoy.
So we're back here with our special guest, a guy who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyhow because he certainly deserves it. Uh, Mr. Joe Adamson. Joe, welcome. Welcome to uh, the podcast and being our first guest. Thank you very much. And Joe and I actually have something in common, which is sort of Marks related. When I was a kid growing up in the Chicago area, I used to go to a summer camp up in northern Wisconsin to a, in a small town called Manaqua. And Joe once told me that that's where he came up with the title of his book. Yes, and not as the title of my book. But I mean, I was just fooling around. I thought it would be a subtitle. and it, it, The way I submitted it, this was my master's thesis at UCLA, mm-hmm. and I submitted it as Stars of Bedlam. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be a nice pun on Star of Bethlehem. And, and the subtitle was Groucho, Harpo, Tico, and sometimes Zeppo. And when we when the book got to Simon, got to Simon and Schuster, uh, Michael Corda just thought that the ideal film book title was Hitchcock Truffaut, which they had already done. You know, but he just thought that's that's the way you want to title a film book. You want to title it Hitchcock, not you know. As, as you may know, there are books out on uh, Buster Keaton's uh, locations. Yeah. And I think it's called something like Silent Echoes. And it just Michael Corda just hated that kind of thing. So he wasn't having anything to do with Stars of Bedlam, and we were casting about for a title. And one of the Simon & Schuster family, one of the guys from the Simon family, was sitting right in the room, and he said, I don't know what's wrong with what you got on there, Groucho Harbuchico and sometimes Zeppo. So that became the title of the book. But that didn't happen until 1971, and the book was started in 19. 19- 66. What's the story with the subtitle, A History of the Marx Brothers and a Satire of the Rest of the World? Or, or celebration in some editions. That occurred to me separately at some point as I was writing this. And, you know, I was making some jab about <clears throat> Hollywood or Paramount or, you know, I was writing that and I said, this is really a history of the Marx Brothers and a satire on the rest of the world. Because <clears throat> I realized yeah, you, you know, you 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 write something at this length, you sort of develop a voice, and it's not necessarily your voice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm developing the voice of somebody who didn't take anything seriously except the Marx Brothers. You know, that's sort of how it was turning out. Mm-hmm. So I just came up with that history of the Marx Brothers and a satire on the rest of the world, and I wrote it down. Obviously, it's one of the all-time favorites uh, from Marx fans. But in addition to people really. Being found the book, they have a real. They seem to have a real emotional attachment to it, I, which I, which I think is very unusual for a film book. I've never heard that. It's sort of like the the way it developed. Yeah, I was kind of expressing a kind of Marxian view of the of, of the world, and and it it became it's like the Marxian kind of irreverence, which sort of informed the whole book, and. It's sort of like reading Catch-22 or Cat's Cradle, I guess, for, for mm-hmm. people. You know, I, I have books that were that kind of thing for me. And discovering Pauline Kael, you know, there's really an emotional attachment to discovering something and realizing, oh, my God, this is my voice. It's like John Lennon when he discovered the Surrealists. You know, you were probably the first author of, like, the generation that of the Marx revival of the 60s to do a book. Before then, it had been more of a studious film authors and very dry writing. You really, really conveyed the personality of the of the generation that was now appreciating the Marx films. That's what people liked. 
I don't know what generation Alan Isles is. He, he, he's English. And, mm-hmm. and that was the only book on the Marx Brothers films that really studied each film seriously. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that book. And a couple of times I, I laughed out loud reading it. But basically, it's just a very dry approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried a different approach. Another thing in terms of how the book came about uh, was that I had a pen pal all through college, James Morrow, if you wanted to Google him. He, I, I've, I've read his new book, his latest book, which has not come out yet. And it was somebody who had been making films the same time I was making films in, in high school. We latched on to each other, and then I went off to college, and we just started writing each other. And our letters just got longer and longer and longer. And, and we, we did gags, and, and we tried to tell each other what was going on in our lives in, in entertaining ways. And really, we were two apprentice writers teaching each other how to write, you know. And uh, we would review movies that we saw and, and that kind of thing. And all this went along with my, you know, discovering the Marx Brothers, which happened a little bit earlier than that, but not when I was a child. You know, I hear these stories, Robert Bader and so forth, you know, people discovering the Marx Brothers on television, just channel surfing when they're seven. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was seven, you didn't channel surf. There was no TV in the house. Just when I was born, there was no television. Mm -hmm. I knew about the Marx Brothers because my dad was a big comedy fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, would talk about W.C. Fields and the Marx Brothers, and I knew there were these great films with Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and the Keystone Cops. And it's hard for kids to understand this now. You just couldn't see these. So I would hear about things at the dinner table, and I knew they were out there. But there was no way of seeing them. And we were in Philadelphia, and I I realize now, if you were in New York or Los Angeles, there were Revival House screenings of Marx Brothers films before major studio films came on television. But not in Philadelphia. They took me to anything I wanted to see. So I saw... I actually saw Tex Avery cartoons and Abbott and Costello films and that kind of thing, and Three Stooges on the big screen before they ever came on television. So I'm, I'm going a long way around and coming back to the fact that Jim and I were, were writing these letters, and, and I developed kind of, you know, we developed kind of an entertaining style because we were trying to entertain each other, and we were trying to top each other with literary feats in, in, in these letters. So some of that style got into the book as I started writing it, because when I started it, it was just a school project. It was not right. intended for publication. What was the chapter you did first? I started with Night at the Opera. Mm-hmm. And what was in my head was that Monkey Business, the films from Monkey Business, The Day at the Races, those five films, mm-hmm. would be the core of the book. Mm-hmm. And everything else, including their vaudeville years, would be the beginning of it. And the end of it would be the films after Day at the Races. Um, room service and at the circus, you know, I, I pretty well understood that those were lesser projects. Right. I was a senior in college uh, at UCLA Film School, and uh, I had nowhere to go. The Vietnam War was on, and if I had left school, I was in, I was going to be instantly inducted into the Army. Ah. So, so I applied to grad school for no other reason than I had to stay in school. Grad students got deferments, but 
1967, that ran out. I had defer- I had a deferment for one year. And that enabled me to get the thing started. So basically, we have Lyndon Johnson to thank for the book. <laughs> <laughs> it was an incredible time. And, and I, so I was entering grad school and thinking, geez, this is going to have to be good if I'm going to get four units of graduate film study uh, credit uh, at, at UCLA. So I really put all the effort I had into it, but I'd been training myself for this for the last, you know, four years. I'd been writing these letters with Jim Morrow, mm-hmm. and uh, it really hit my professor. Uh, it really just knocked him out when he read it. He just uh, flipped, and he said, "You, you got to finish this." A friend of mine joked. He said, "You don't have an MA degree. All you have is 128 units of Marx Brothers." <laughs> <laughs> I was supporting myself for the first time in my life. And meanwhile, I had this project. I was lugging from apartment to apartment. I moved, I think, 10 times in that space of three years while I was trying to get this thing written. Mm-hmm. Really kind of incredible. So not at the opera. I started first because I knew where I was going with that. Randy Scredvet, uh, who did has done the Ultimate Laurel and Hardy book, yeah. uh, has said the same thing. He, he started... Uh, Somewhere in the middle, Babes in Toyland or something, was the film he first started writing, mm-hmm. you know, actually drafting material. So I had ideas in my head. I was taking notes on three-by-five cards. But when it actually came to drafting, I had some time. And I actually started drafting what what finally became the book. So let me ask you, I'm, you know, obviously your feelings and thoughts on the brothers and their films has evolved over the years. What film do you feel most differently about now than when you did it? Maybe, maybe. Night in Casablanca, which I really, if you pick up the book and read what I wrote about Night in Casablanca now, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's really very negative. And I have to explain to people, you know, I was a starving student mm-hmm. and uh, I had to figure out how to, how to screen all these films so that I could write about them intelligently. And I had quarter-inch tape recordings of some of them, Monkey Business being one. I know I had that on tape. Mm-hmm. And I would go to screenings and, and just write down the dialogue as it happened. You know, mm-hmm. uh, While I was working on the book, my professor, Howard Zuber, said, look, um, they're showing Night in Casablanca at the pizza parlor, right. which was right there in, in Westwood Village near UCLA. So... I went and ordered my pizza, and and I would sit through two screenings a night, Mm -hmm. and I did this for two nights, writing down the dialogue as people were saying it. It just wasn't the best way to see any film, but definitely to see a 1946 film in 1967, it just wasn't making it for me the way Duck Soup did or, you know, Night at the Opera. I I was writing about films made in the 1930s. Yeah. In the in the 1960s, in, in the era of Sgt. Pepper and, and all this stuff, and there was a reason I was doing that. It was because I thought the Marx Brothers were so great, and their surreal humor was very topical and just, you know, of the moment. And the attitude they struck, I mean, it's one reason people say now, you know, well, of course, people in the 60s liked Duck Soup because it's anti-war. Well, nobody said Duck Soup was anti-war until 1967, 1968. Right. Right. And then you look at it, and it just takes an irreverent attitude toward politics and war and, and the whole thing. That's all it does. It's not an anti-war film, or nobody thought it was. Right. But that seemed very timely. So to look at Night in Casablanca at that point, 
It's just like, no, this is not making it. It's not surreal. It's it's, it's three old comedians trying to be funny. But Ed, Ed, Eddie Bazell said, I didn't have three pixies to work with. I had three old men pretending they were pixies. Um, and and that's what I saw. And it's, it's really, it's now generally agreed, I think, to be the best of later films. Roger seems to be having a good time, which he really hadn't since the Thalberg films. Well, he has that beautiful white suit. Definitely the best thing they did after a day at the races, and some people think it's even better than that. Uh, yeah, a lot, well, a lot of day at the races overproduced quality. Uh, it it doesn't have. The Marx Brothers were three of the producers of, of Night in Casablanca. Because they were producers of the film and they didn't have the big studio bureaucracy to deal with, which is what... Well, I mean, that's that's why Day at the Races is this big bloated thing. But it's also, they had to slog all the way through at the circus, go west, and, and big store. I mean, if you think they're hard to watch, <laughs> these guys had to actually go go make them. Um, it's just dealing with art, with Louis B. Mayer did not appeal to them, and, and and now they were more in the driver's seat, and there were there's plot stuff that they were able to cut. There was plot stuff that I know was was shot mm-hmm. that they cut out, and and even that boy and that girl, they don't have the the sickly quality that uh, Kenny Baker does in At the Circus and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of the a lot of the stuff that's really annoying about their later films that isn't there in Night Casablanca. It's really it, it, it's it's kind of fun when, when it works. It's 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 really clicking. It's quite amazing that they were able to make something that good in a 1940s atmosphere when it, you know their best stuff was done out of the Roaring Twenties and early Thirties, and now here they are, like 10, 15 years after their best work. Yeah, and Frank Tashlin's contribution is worthwhile. I can't tell you how many times, speaking of Night in Casablanca, here's a, here's a real tidbit about it. When people learn that, I have done, that I'm doing work on the Marx Brothers or I have done work on the Marx Brothers, about half the time, the thing that, you know, their eyes light up and they go, which film is it? Where they ask Harpo, what do you think you're doing? Holding up that building and they pull it away and the building falls down. That is one of the favorite gags of all time for, mm-hmm. for the Marx Brothers. And, and it almost didn't get done. I think it was one of the last things to actually photograph for the film. We, we we recorded earlier and started to talk about our our least favorite moments in the Marx films. And we're not talking about maybe some romantic subplots or songs we didn't like, or even gags that we didn't think were funny, but just things that when you watch, you go, ooh, I wish they wouldn't have done that, or that, that bothers me. Do you have anything that stands out? The only things I can think of are either romantic subplot moments, like uh, Alan Jones punching uh, what's his name in, in Night at the Opera. Um, <laughs> but there's just a couple things like that. I was going to say in Night in Casablanca when he says, you know, until I saw you two, I thought every date in town was broken. I mean, oh come on. But I, and I guess also there's the moment where uh, in Day at the Races where uh, Groucho makes a joke and Marino Sullivan says, "Silly." Yeah. <laughs> Matthew's not here, but what always bothers him in a day at the races where in the opening scene where Groucho is being interviewed. Judy, it seems to me, if I may say so, we are making rather a hasty decision. I'm satisfied with Mrs. Upjohn's recommendations. (laughs) 
You know why that line is there. It's, it's sort of MGM's version of, you know, filling in instead of leaving you hanging. Like yeah. Some of the criticism in the in the Duck Soup podcast was, who is Margaret Dumont playing, and why yeah. is she devoted to having Groucho be the head of Fredonia? None of that is explained. All of a sudden, Groucho is being inaugurated as, as the head of Fredonia. That would never satisfy Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, it was important for them to justify the plot line. I, I think that works, but I mean, the idea of Groucho being a horse doctor and having to hide that, that, that is one of the uncomfortable moments. You just don't need that. It starts getting back into situation comedy, and you, you know, if, if you study Buster Keaton at all, he has a line about why he didn't like to do films like that, you know, films like the Eddie Cantor films. He he tried not to do. He said, in every film like that, there's one character that if they just said, wait a minute, this is the situation, but all the action would stop. <laughs> and and he's absolutely right. And it, it's so it's just maddening for me to watch these things. I I, I can't stand them. But that's mm-hmm. why monkey business is such a delight in, in duck soup. I'm developing, as, as I think Matthew knows, a book on, on the golden age of comedy. And basically, I think the, the great ones all get away from that situation comedy. Joe, refresh my memory. When did your book come out in relation to the Animal Crackers re-release? It, it was ahead of that. And, of course, I didn't know it was coming. I mean, in other words, people always say Animal Crackers was never shown on television. And, and I beg to differ. I remember when I was when major studio films first came on television, I would scan the TV guide every week, and that's how I saw the bank dig, and never give a sucker an even break, and I know I saw Day at the Races and At the Circus repeatedly. The first one I saw was the big store, and then Day at the Races came on, At the Circus came on, and then a few months later Day at the Races came on again, and then At the Circus came on again, and. For a while, it was just those those three films were all I had seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, Animal Crackers was scheduled to be shown in Philadelphia. And I think it was like, it was either the late show, at, which came on at 11.30, which was just too late for me. I was still a kid. Or it was even later than that. It was like one in the morning, sometimes films you really wanted to see would come on like at one mm-hmm. in the morning because they were now doing, instead of having a test pattern all night, they would actually show an old movie or something and, and go later into the night than they had been going. And I swear, Animal Crackers came on and it was so late I could never see it. And I thought, all right, next time it comes on, maybe it'll come on at a decent hour and I'll get to see it. Well, I think it was screened a couple times in New York and either George S. Kaufman or his daughter or somebody said, wait a minute, don't we have rights to that? Can they show that without paying us? And Universal, instead of solving the legal problem, simply shelved the film. Mm-hmm. So I can see why people say it was never shown on television because that was virtually never, not absolutely never. I think it was shown in retrospect, it was really fortunate because in the midst of this great revival of the team, you basically have a new film that most people haven't seen. And it happens to be their best. What happened was Bob Epstein at, at UCLA was um, very uh, sympathetic to the project. He was very big on old movies, which 
most of the instructors at UCLA were not. There was this very much uh, now generation kind of attitude among uh, film students at that time. And so old Hollywood films were not regarded very highly. And the Marx Brothers were a little bit different from that. But some people had trouble understanding why I was devoting all this time to films that had been made 30 years ago when we were making better films, you know, right now. So anyway, my book came out in September 73. So there was about a six-month period where the only way you could find out what happened in Animal Crackers was to buy my book, which was only available in hardback. So it was a $10 venture at that time, which is something like saying, you know, $25 today. Bob Epstein in the 60s, uh, was very sympathetic to the book. He, he was in touch with William K. Everson, and William K. Everson would send him films to screen at UCLA. Um, and he said, I'll, I'll ask him to show it. I'll ask him to send me Animal Crackers next time. Well, that took two years. I think there was a year that he never did send a film. And it was 1969 before that actually happened. So here I was writing, never having seen Animal Crackers and not realizing how good it was. Uh, Alan Isle said it was not as good a film as Coconuts. And I, I hated Coconuts. So I thought, oh, God, this must be miserable. But I'm going to have to see it, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I saw it, I saw it in a – it was screened at UCLA in a nice theater, and it was jam-packed. And I'll tell you – they, they, they tore the place apart. They they laughed at every joke. And I mean, some of the jokes, like Harpo bouncing the check, just got enormous laughs. I recorded the whole mm -hmm. thing. And uh, it's just the laughter was incredible. It was an incredible way to see it. And it, 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 it's, it's one of my favorite Marx Brothers films now. But I really didn't expect anything like that. I recall seeing a some sort of bootleg showing in like 1972, long before the re-release at a, in a suburban Chicago theater. And I remember thinking, I don't know what the reason is why I don't I haven't seen this anywhere else, but <laughs> this is as good as it gets. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of understanding what they were like on the stage, it really is a much better example than Coconuts. Coconuts was, you know, so much longer apparently in, in its first cut. Did they basically shoot the entire show and then cut it down in editing? I think they figured that was the quickest way to go about it, and, and Maury Riskin did, did the screenplay for Animal Crackers, and they made the cuts ahead of time. They, they cut a lot of the music, and, and the song that's in there, Why Am I So Romantic, was composed for the film. That was not in the play. Uh, that's really kind of remarkable. Yeah, musical comedy goes to film with all new music. <laughs> yeah, uh, hooray for Captain Spaulding, right. surprise. Right. I read an interview with Harpo where he said, uh, it's funny, this thing is still called Animal Crackers, but all the animal jokes in it, for the reason it was called Animal Crackers, all failed to work. So they were dropped, everything except there's there's the gags with the canary are, are still in there. But that's about it. Apparently there were other animal gags and, and they didn't work. Uh, they did some stuff with horses on the road tour to day at the races, too. And I think the problem is, I, I remember we had to, uh, we brought a goat on stage for one of the shows that I was involved with in, in high school. And it's like, that's just very distracting to the audience, because they're very aware that this animal is up there and doesn't know what's going on. 
it, it just kind of throws people. So I guess they, the reason it's called animal crackers, there's now no reason that it's called animal crackers. But apparently there was a reason for that, and there were a lot of animal jokes. And all the other titles are so logical. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of said, you know, there was no reason for the title I'll Say She Is. Yeah. There really is. I mean, if you look at the text. Sure, it's even a line from the show. Yeah, yeah. The, the, there, there is some logic to it, and there's some logic to coconuts. Mm -hmm. And then it just got into, okay, let's find some animals. We call that one animal crackers. We'll call this one <laughs> monkey business. And it, it just went on from there. And duck soup the rest of your life. Until... Until they did a night at the opera, and then that was, the, that was the change. As long as we've brought up Animal Crackers, let, let me just say, the, the, the new version, the new digital restoration yeah. is really tremendous. And there's stuff in there that I think I knew was there, but it was still kind of, I had notes. I have notes on all the films and all the research I've yeah. done in, in the scripts, you know. But there were still some surprises when I saw it. But it's, it's been referred to as the British version. This complete print was found at the right, BFI. Right. But this is the version that was released in the United States and Canada and England and Scotland and Ireland uh, and everywhere else as animal crackers. But they're probably some of those things that were cut. I mean, like, I think I'll try to make her. I'm, I'm sure that was not screened in, in Philadelphia or anywhere in in the state of Pennsylvania with that line in it. I'm sure that cut was was made in Pennsylvania, but that was the problem. That's why the Hayes office finally clamped down in 34, because there was all sorts of local censorship that was going on, and prints were getting chopped up, and they just said, we, we have to be consistent about this. You know, when they were doing the search for these for these films, for the restoration, for the box set, I, I don't think anybody expected them to find an uncut animal crackers because nobody even knows when it was last seen in that version. I, I think that Universal doesn't appreciate what they have because when I first saw it, it was introduced by a Universal representative and he just kind of tossed that off very lightly. He said, yeah, I think there's some stuff in there that wasn't there before. You know, just very casually. I mean, there's about three, four minutes worth of stuff, and it's all gold. A lot of people thought when they said, okay, restored versions of the Marx Brothers films, a lot of people just assumed that all that footage that's been chopped out of horse feathers was just magically back in there. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Can I say one thing about that book that's very ironic is that when I was writing it, my main focus was trying to impress people older than me. My professor, Howard Suber, was about seven, he was only seven or eight years older than I was. He had a lot of new ideas. But I mean, he was older than I was. I was hoping people like William K. Everson uh, and Pauline, K Pauline Kale was one of the early admirers of the book and one of the great supporters, even before Howard Suber latched onto it. Uh, she, she was very encouraging and helpful. My focus was trying to uh, impress people older than myself. Would Groucho be one of those people? Yeah, and it turned out he did like it. Now that as soon as the book came out, like all the fan letters were from teenagers. They were all from people, and I was no longer a teenager by the time it came out. They were all from people younger than I was, and it seems to have had its greatest impact on people younger than I was. I had only the, the slightest idea that anybody younger than me might even read it. It's iconoclastic. 
It's iconoclastic and it captures the iconoclasm of the Marx Brothers in a way that, I mean, I think it appeals to everybody, but young people in particular are so attuned to that spirit of iconoclasm. It's, it's, it's almost as if I wrote it for uh, adolescents, but I didn't. And for all those people out there who are wondering, where's the ebook version? Where's the audiobook version? Let me tell you, this book is best enjoyed in its original hardcover, beautiful edition with a silver slipcover, which I basically wore out and had to replace with a stolen one from my public library. Me too. Same exact story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I've had three of them over the years. I want to ask you one last thing about this photo of you on the back cover with you got your long locks and beautiful sweater, very telling look to the camera. That photo was taken at, at Penn State. I was a, I was an instructor by the time that photo was taken. And if you look at the bottom of the photo, my arms are crossed on Lindsay Duran's head. Oh. And Lindsay Duran was my girlfriend, and she was very helpful uh, all through the time I was writing the book. She was she she critiqued it very intelligently. I, I mentioned her full name. I, 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 I'm not going with her anymore. She, she married somebody else. But I mean, for a while, she was head of United Artists. And just the top of her head is visible in that picture. <laughs> so it wasn't taken for this purpose, for the to be on the book? No, it, it was taken to be a picture of Lindsay and me, and the campus photographer said, hey, you know, if you want me to shoot your picture, I'll be glad to do it. He was, he was there to do that kind of thing. And one last thing before I let you go, since Matthew couldn't be here, uh, we, we invite you to speak freely about what you think about Matthew and his book and his work. <laughs> Really? Right now? No, Matthew really wanted, you know, he, he would like to speak with you on a future podcast. So let's, let's do it again sometime. Let's do it where we're all speaking, and hopefully uh, I'll get a chance to talk to Noah a little bit more. I'm just afraid that if we talk, Joe, I'll, I'll embarrass you too much for my Catcher in the Rye and my On the Road and my Hop on Pop and all that your book has meant to me. I have to say, I have to say, I've never written you the, the email or the the note on Facebook I intended to uh, when I read your. I, I have your book on Alsatias, and I really oh, appreciate the way the way you treat uh, my book. Appreciate it very much. I, I don't know where you got the idea. I'm friendly and accessible. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that, on that note, we're going to let you go, Joe. Once again, we appreciate it, and we hope to talk to you soon. And thanks again. All right, thank you. Talk Joe. to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much to Joe Adamson and thank you very much to all of you for listening to the second episode of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. If you enjoyed it, as ever, please tell your friends, share the link and leave a comment on iTunes. If you want to win a copy of Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, and why would you not want Ooh. to? Anybody would want to, unless they've got one. In fact, even if they've already got one, they would want to win another one. All you have to do is to go to our uh, website, which uh, from memory, I think, is markscast.blogspot.com. Does that sound right? That sounds That's right. Yeah, go there. You'll find uh, this latest edition uh, there as a blog post. And in a comment, just write the word book. It's as simple as that. Just write the word book. Don't bother putting your address or anything book. like that. And then what we will do is we will pick a winner. Uh, I can't tell you how we'll do it. I can only tell you that it will be scientifically. So you can have no fears there. It will be done scientifically. We'll pick a winner and then we'll let you know and you can give us the address and you'll get a free copy of Noah's book. How about that? 
next and week, always, and, next time. Oh, sorry, yeah, wait, 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 wait. And yep, as yep, always, yep. I have to do this for legal reasons. Legal. Yeah, legal. Yep. As always, Jay Hopkins is not eligible. <laughs> as long as your name is not Jay Hopkins, just leave a comment, write the word book, and one of you will be getting a free copy of that book. Next time, we will be talking about A Day at the Races, an entire show devoted to one film. And our special guest will be Frank Ferrante. Sounds like fun. It does sound like fun. I'm going to be there. (laughs) 